All right, at our end of our time together today, we are having a deacon ordination. We're ordaining Shane Williams to that office, and so we're taking a one-week break from the Beatitudes. We'll be back uh, in the Beatitudes next week uh, with blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord willing. And so, but today we're kind of pulling out of that a little bit because uh, a time like this gives us an opportunity this morning, I felt like, to just kind of to focus on um, what I call the power of sharing ministry together. You know, sharing is a constant lesson in our home with our kids, especially with a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh, my four-year-old son does not like to share. And, and sometimes he does. I, I, I'm being a little harsh on him. But as a general rule, sometimes he doesn't like to share. And so I get questions like this. Uh, his sister gets his stuffed animal, and it's, is she going to sleep with my stuffed animal? Can I, can I, do I not get to sleep with my stuffed animal now? You know, he's always afraid he's never going to get it back. Is she going to break my toy? Is she going to keep my toy? Um, and I'm always having to kind of tell him, yes, you know, and then we get to share. She's not going to break it. You, you know, you're going you're gonna to share. Kids don't like to just, na- we're not naturally, generally sharing people many times. So we have to kind of work on that because we have a sin nature that's very selfish. But when it comes to sharing other things, let's say like picking up the toys, right? Now, then we like to share, right? Everybody's behind that. It's like, hey, isn't she going to help? You know, I mean, every, there's certain things in life, life we don't want to share, and there's some things in life we do want to share. And service and ministry in the church is something that needs to be shared, and it's something we should want to share. You know, as a church grows and matures, one person, two people, three people, five people can't do everything. We've got to serve the Lord together, and for the church to go forward, ministry or service, which are synonyms, have to be Shared. Everyone in the local church has a ministry or a service if you're a member of a local church. It's been said, I've heard one pastor say it this way, this room is not a landing zone but a launching pad, right? God didn't save us to to get together and sit and soak but to serve. And when ministry is shared, more people get to be blessed by the ministry through the participation of it and the multiplication of it. And see, when people aren't serving or too few people bear the load of ministry and service in the local church, the ministry gets choked, it gets stagnated, it gets halted. And if ministry's not shared, it can't grow. That's the weird thing about ministry. That's just the way God has designed it to work, we're going to see this morning. If it's not split up, if it's not delegated, if it's not carried on by many, if it's not shared, it will not grow, right? It's just like having a big old plant that's outgrown the pot, okay? At some point, something's got to give. And healthy churches are sharing churches, Healthy churches are churches that share ministry together. And I want us to always be and to continue to be and to grow to be an increasingly healthy church. See, I don't just work here. I go to church here. My family goes to church here. My kids are in the children's ministry here. My wife sits under the preaching here, right? And I don't always like the preaching. And so um, I go to church here. And so it's important to me, not just as your pastor, but as a church member, that we be a healthy and increasingly healthy church. And for this morning, we're going to focus on the idea that we need to share and increasingly learn to share ministry together. In Acts chapter 6, we have a great text this morning that shows us the power of sharing ministry. And so I'm going to read that to you. It's going to be on the screen for you this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And then I'll explain our context this morning. And I'm going to give you four takeaways this morning that happen when we share ministry. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, faith in Christ. So here in Acts chapter 6, the early church is growing. It's multiplying. And this church here located in Jerusalem is just exploding in growth. And people are being saved and new people are being added. And we learned earlier in Acts that they're being added daily. And this is a very exciting time, right? I mean, can you imagine? It, it, this is an exciting time. It, not only is it a new thing that's happening, but man, people are just getting saved. People are getting baptized left and right. Lives are being changed. People are being set free from addictions and, and, and just dead, uh, emotionless, sterile religion and lifeless religion and just being set free to new life in Christ. It's a great, exciting time. And that's the kind of thing that pe godly people long for. Right, Real Christians long and thirst to be a part of that, to see that, and to want that to happen. And as disciples were being added, this was a good thing, but good things create challenges. And so we see here in Acts chapter 6 a, a challenge that's been created because of all the good things that's going on. And see, poor organization or poor leadership or a lack of serving people can ultimately hurt a church and could have hurt this church if they wouldn't have increasingly organized, increasingly developed leaders, and increasingly shared the ministry. Then, ultimately, growth would have been stagnated. And the big question many have when they read this is whether this is where the deacon ministry began. And the text simply does not say. Let's be clear about that. It, doesn't, it never calls these anywhere in Acts. that never calls these seven men deacons. But while the, they're not called deacons in this text, the same root Greek word is used three times in the first seven verses. In verse 1, you see it referred to in talking about the distribution. Verse 2, uh, when the word serve is there, about serving the tables. Verse 4 refers to serving the ministry of the, the, ministry of the word is that same word for serve, uh, talking about the apostles. And so, it, not necessarily, we don't really know for sure, but it, it does seem to capture the heart of that ministry. And some of you may be thinking, well, what's a deacon anyway? You know, if you're a guest with us, or if you're kind of new to church, you might be thinking, well, what is a deacon? I've heard that term used. You know, maybe you've heard it used in good light and bad light, depending on what kind of church experience you've had. Um, I could tell a lot of jokes this morning. We won't do that because I love our deacons. But uh, deacons and pastors always have a lot, of, a lot of jokes that go back and forth. But the Greek word simply means servant. If you're curious, what, what does deacon even mean? Well, the Greek word simply means servant. And in the New Testament, it's an office, an official office in the church. And they are, to put it, Plainly, leading servants that model and lead others in service. I mean, you know, you'll go, you can search the New Testament left and right. You will not find much description about what deacons do. It's actually very vague about it. What you will find is intent description on what they must look like, live like, and be like in their character. Because it's not as important in terms of what they do as in terms of who they are. Because what they do might look different in different cultures, in different churches, at different times, in different seasons. Because they serve the church and they help serve the church in whatever the church needs at that particular time. So this may or may not, in Acts chapter 6, be the beginning of the office of deacon. However, we do get a picture here, I believe, of the heart of what deacon ministry looks like. We also get a picture of the need for a bigger picture of sharing the ministry throughout the church. And we see here there's really two types of ministry you see being dealt with that, 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 that needs attention in the church. One is word ministry. And you see the apostles talking about the need to attend to that through the preaching of the word and prayer. 
And you also see need ministry, caring for widows, the poor, the hurting, the, the physical needs that many times arise in a congregation. So you have attention to the Word of God and attention to the people of God, and both require attention. And later, as the church matures, we, end, we do end up with two offices. At some point, that's established in the church history, and that is the office of pastor or elder or bishop. You'll see all three of those words in the New Testament, okay? So just to, to kind of paint you a picture, you see pastor, elder, deacon, that's the same office is the way we interpret it, okay? Same office. It's synonyms. It's different ways of saying the same thing, right? I'm a lawyer. I'm an attorney. Get right? Basically the same thing. Pastor, elder, deacon, same thing. We tend to use the word pastor here. You also have the office of deacon, which is a, se- a second office you see in the church. And both are given distinct qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in this passage, in Acts chapter 6, there do seem to be some similarities here as the apostles are sort of acting like the functional pastors in the church at that time before they had risen up uh, local elders and local pastors. And the seven here seem to be acting sort of like in the role of we see deacons that act in today out of the congregation. And so to kind of help us understand these two offices, pastors or elders are what you might has been called servant leaders who serve primarily by leading. And deacons are lead servants that lead primarily by serving, all right? Now, while this may or may not be the deacons as we know it today, like I said, it is the heart of that ministry on display. Because the heart of deacon ministry is the need for godly lead servants to help free servant leader pastors to focus more on word ministry and the overall mission and vision of the church and to help empower and equip others to serve in the church so that can multiply throughout the church. Now, there's a bigger principle I want us to see here, though. Shared ministry enables church health. If the apostles had continued to try and do everything themselves, either somebody was going to be hungry or the word was not going to go forward in the same effort that it could have. However, in the church, we've got to learn to share the ministry and understand that everybody that's a part of a local church has some role. It may not be in an official office as pastor or as deacon, but there's some role for you this morning and some serve in those offices. But, however, everyone has some particular role that they own. Now, when we all begin to, as a church family, share the ministry together, there are four things I think this passage shows us that can happen. The first one is, when ministry is shared, challenges can be met. When ministry is shared, challenges can be met. Notice there's a challenge that we mentioned here that, that, that's arisen between these Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenists, it's, it calls them. What does that mean? It means Greek-speaking. You might even have in your Bible a little number one or a little number two, and you can follow it to the bottom, and it'll tell you it can also it means Greek speaking. And what had happened here is during the great dispersion that had happened uh, of the Jews, and they had scattered to different regions. Many of them had become Greek speaking, right, and grew up in that culture speaking Greek versus Hebrew speaking, which was the natural language of the Jewish people. And now they're back in. Jerusalem, okay, and an issue has arisen because what would happen is these people would move off, they get scattered, and as they get late in life and they think they're approaching death, they want to die in Jerusalem. And so they make their way back to Jerusalem and they die in Jerusalem. Well, what does that lead to? A disproportionate number of widows in the community, all right? So you end up with a lot of of widows there who are Greek-speaking Jews. And at the time, the church is exploding, right? There's a lot that's happened between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, and this is a mega church. 3,000 people came to the Lord or something like that, like in one day, right? And so this is a big church scattered throughout the city of Jerusalem, meeting in homes, hard for them to even gather in one place, except for probably at the temple, at Solomon's portico. And so they're meeting in homes throughout the week, 
And so it's understandable how this issue happened. So what would happen is during the week, uh, every week the church would collect this offering, sort of like what we term a benevolence offering today that they call the daily distribution. What it is is people would bring money together to help those who didn't have money to eat, and they would take that cash, they would buy food, and then they would distribute the food every week, and the most needy were the widows. Because in that culture, if you didn't have a husband, it was very difficult to make it the way the culture was set up at that time. They didn't have Social Security. They didn't have Medicare. Right? You had the church. That's all you had. And many of these people who, had, who are of the Jewish faith who had moved back and then their husband or wife dies or whatever and they're in a more difficult spot and they would have been drawn to, as commentators say, the love and the generosity and the charity of the early church. And so you see many of them coming to faith in Christ. Now there's all these people that need help. So the apostles at this time are likely overseeing this daily distribution. But as the church grew, opportunities grew, and these Hellenistic widows got mistakenly overlooked. It's not that they're purposely like, we're not serving them because they are Greek-speaking and we're Hebrew-speaking. That's not what's happening here. It just doesn't in any way give us that, that visual. The idea just seems to be, wow, I just got away from them, right? I mean, it's a big church, a lot of people scattered about, and, and it's just natural that the people that had more like language and culture in common tended to be grouped together, and, so, and the leadership wasn't that way, right? They, they, they didn't come from that culture, and so they just, it was just an oversight that was happening. And a valid complaint arises. Because when you're the outsider, like these Hellenists were, and now you're on the inside, you're a part of the church family, you're already a little bit self-conscious because you don't feel like you're completely like everybody else. You speak a different language, for instance, than the leadership does. And so there's a valid complaint here of, hey, what's going on? Like, why are, why are our widows being overlooked? We're giving, we're participating in this, but then our people, we feel like the people that we know the best are are being overlooked. It's a valid complaint. And every church faces some types of challenges if it at all tries to move forward and grow. If new people come into the church, if people get saved, if people become a part of the, the church family, new challenges will always arise. A church without challenges to deal with is a church that has been defeated by its challenges and is likely dead, right? If there's no challenges, there's nothing much happening. Right? If things are happening, there's going to be challenges. And the apostles here could have made excuses. They could have complained and got defensive. Who are you to complain to us? We're apostles. We, we, were, we were selected by Jesus himself. Do you know who I am? I'm Peter, man. Don't you know who I am? But they didn't get that way at all, did they? Instead, they led and they shared the ministry and people rose to meet the challenges and the church began to flourish more and more. Because, see... Healthy, growing, living organisms will face challenges. If they're healthy, if they're growing, if they're living, they will face challenges. I, I think about it like this way. Think about having a teenager, okay? Everybody in here has been a teenager or raised one, or been a teenager and raised one, I guess, you know. So, and a teenager hits that growth spurt, and all of a sudden the voice changes. They, you can't keep them in clothes anymore. They're growing so fast. They're eating you out of house and home. It presents a lot of problems, perceived problems. But you know what it actually is? It's, it's, it's normal. It's a pro- byproduct of normal healthy growth. If you, if you didn't have that, you'd be concerned. It's, it's just a byproduct of growth. Yeah, it creates some challenges. You're spending more on your groceries, but it's normal, right? And in the same way, when, when something's healthy and something's growing and good things are happening, challenges are normal. If they're not happening, something is wrong. And when a church faces a challenge, leaders have to lead, the church has to rally, and people have to step up to the challenge. It sounds cheesy, 
It is kind of cheesy, but I like it because it sticks in your head. It's been said it takes teamwork to make the dream work. You've probably heard that before, right? And it does. It takes people working together. Leaders can accomplish more together than apart. The church can accomplish more together as apart and while, than apart. And while everyone has a different role, nobody has the same role, everyone has a role. And every cho- church has a choice when it faces challenges. Infighting or unity. Leadership or floundering. The church can move the mission forward or forfeit the mission as it wallows in distraction and self-pity and confusion. You know, even here we face our own challenges. We have people serving. Thank God for people that serve in our church. Our church is full of people that just give tons of time and energy to serve. And I'm very grateful they do because we actually need more of them. I'd like to double them tomorrow. We need child care workers. We don't have enough. We don't have near enough. We've got people that miss church two or three times a month to do child care because we don't have enough child care workers. We need more greeters and parking lot workers. We need people more engaged in community with one another so needs can be met and so we know when needs arise and we know when somebody's in the hospital. We know when somebody's sick or somebody's going through this or going through that so needs can be met. More people engaged in small groups so that ministry can happen. If you're a part of North Park, I would ask you this morning, how might God have you serve? What challenge might he have you rise up to help meet in the church? See, in a servant-hearted church, there's no service below anyone. There's just not. See, if you're not careful, we'll read this passage and think the apostles were acting like serving tables was below them. When you just read it, you know, and you don't really understand what's going on, you're just reading it, and you're like, we got to preach, we can't serve tables, who do you think we are, right? And it sounds kind of, when you just read it and you don't understand, you might just be kind of like, that sounds kind of arrogant, right? That's not the problem. You know who was serving the tables most likely at this time? It was the apostles. They were the only ones doing it. The problem wasn't that they were unwilling. The problem is they didn't have any help. They, they were having to do everything. And it got to a point that they were overlooking people because they couldn't help it. And so they were having to make a choice now. Do we continue to push the word forward and do word ministry and all that comes with that, all the conversations, all the counseling, all the things that fall off of that, or do we spend less time doing that and more time making sure everybody has something to eat? They weren't saying we're above this. They were saying we need help. And in a servant-hearted church, there's no service below anyone. Someone might not be a CEO at work, but they need to be willing to change a diaper at church. You might remove tumors and hearts for a living, but you might need to wear orange and work in a parking lot at church or various other ways. My point is, in kingdom service, the ground is level, and we just come to serve, right? Whatever God calls us and asks us to do. And churches can only face their challenges together. And leaders, whether that's the servant-leading pastors or lead-serving deacons, leaders go first. They lead the way. And when the ministry is shared, challenges can be met. Number two, when ministry is shared, priorities can be fulfilled. Verse two says, we we just talked about it. It's not right we give up preaching the word to serve tables. Like I said, it's not that the apostles thought this was below them. But the problem is, all the extra serving that was coming on because of the growth in the church was crowding out the preaching of the word and were soon to. And in verses 3 and 4, the church was told to pick out godly men. They called all the disciples together. So they called all the church together. And they asked them to pick out godly men who could help with the physical need that needed attention at this particular time. So the apostles could continue to focus on the prayer and word ministry. And notice what you have happening here is not an either or. They have decided... We're not going to pick which one of these things needs to be done. Both need to be done. Both God's word and God's people, both God's mission and God's people need attention. 
The apostles refused to make a choice between needs being met and the word going forward. God's word and God's people both always need attention. And prioritizing in the church isn't always about elimination. Sometimes it is. Sometimes prioritizing in the church means we don't need to do that anymore. Jesus didn't call us to that. It doesn't help us go forward. It's not meeting a particular need. It's, it's just not really what we do as a church and not what we're supposed to be about. So it just, gotta, it just needs to go. Maybe it can come back later. Maybe it never comes back. Sometimes you've got to eliminate. But many times, we just need to share. Sometimes it's just about sharing. See, if the church stops becoming a movement of people, proclaiming God's word, praying, pushing the mission forward, the church might as well quit. It's not a church anymore. See, our, our calling is real simple. Our, our ultimate calling, according to Jesus, Matthew 28, is making disciples. Teaching people what Jesus has taught. Teaching the word of God to people. Helping people come to faith in Christ and develop in Christ-like character. And if we don't share ministry responsibilities, we'll ultimately be forced to make choices in the church God never intended for us to make. Are we going to do this or are we going to do this? Are we going to do this or are we going to do this? He never meant for the needy, the hurting, the physical needs in a church to go uncared for. He also never intended for preaching and teaching to be neglected or prayer to be neglected. And like the apostles, here at North Park, we believe the teaching of the word is at the center of everything we do. In Acts 2.42, says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayers. You go on and read the next few verses, it's a passage that you find they were com deeply committed to God, his word, and his people. And that permeated everything. And at the very center of it was a commitment to what we have today as the scriptures, the apostles' teaching. In 2 Timothy 4, the apostle Paul tells Timothy in verses 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? He charges him. Preach the word. This is a priority. This is a big deal. Now, Obviously, as senior pastor here, I lead in this. But imagine this. Imagine this morning if I had to watch children while I was up here. Right? I've got a kid bouncing them on my knee, right? And, you know, I've got a guitar in my hand. Maybe I led worship this morning. Lord, help us. Right? It would be bad. Let me just tell you. And if I had to do all that, you know, but thankfully I don't have to do all that because we've got servant leaders that have risen up, leading servants that go out, and they're doing things like that. And people are leading in these sort of areas give you an example even even uh, even at the deacon start with the deacon level right you were led in worship this morning by a deacon at north park our student ministry is led by a deacon at north park there, we have various committees and councils and other things that are led by deacons at north park thank god for those men who step up and say i'll lead right and i'll, I'll serve and i'll help equip others to serve in that way and we have other people who aren't deacons they aren't pastors they're not on a payroll they're not any they're just here because they love Jesus and they love his church and they work in childcare and they greet people and they serve in a band or they serve back back there working sound and, and media and doing things like that they do teach Sunday school classes do various things or they're involved in their small group and they reach out to people they write cards they write notes they pray for people right they they're just actively serving and actively doing things with their faith and one key role of deacons in the New Testament is to help tend to the physical needs in the congregation so the pastors can tend more to the spiritual things of proclaiming God's word and overall mission. Now, I don't really like to separate the two because they kind of begin, they bleed together. But you, you see an emphasis on that here. The point is we don't want either to get neglected. So we have to at times find ways to delegate things. And word ministry and prayer we see here in the passage going together. And 
What we see here, I believe, the heart of this is that the deacons in the church are the pace setters in service. They are lead servants that lead others in serving. I heard one preacher say it this way, just as me as the pastor, as I stand up here and preach today, and I'm equipping you, right? And one of the things I'm equipping you to do, hopefully, is to preach, because we're all preachers. I'm particularly called to preach in a particular way to a particular office, but every Christian has a calling of proclamation on their life, to teach and to preach to their family, to their co-workers, to, to share God's word. We're all called to do that. So by teaching you, I'm hopefully equipping you to be able to handle these things, talk about these things, and grow in your faith in those ways. And And as this pastor put it, I love the way he put it, deacons are out there hopefully equipping people in service so that as they they watch them model service and as they help them get involved in service and they lead them in service, they're they're, they're growing and maturing in their their service roles in the church and outside the church as they serve God and his people and the world around us. But it takes more than deacons. I thank God for our deacons, but if it's it's just going to be the pastors and deacons, we'll be in trouble. Not enough of us everybody's got to serve so all priorities of the church can be met. We have people at our church that serve on committees and teams, child care, as I mentioned earlier, group leaders, small group leaders, greeters, people serving in all sorts of various ways. The band up here. And then we've got small groups and member care primarily should happen through the small groups. You know, if you're in a small group, you're the closest to a need that arises in the church or in someone's life. And it, If you're not careful, if you just refuse to be a part of a small group, you can ultimately refuse to be a part of bearing the needs and burdens of others in the church, which is a calling, according to Galatians 6, for all Christians. It's hard to do that if we're not close to people. And small groups help with that immensely. And see, ultimately in the church, every church member, every Christian has to decide if they're going to attend a weekly event or be a part of a living community. And there's a difference. Am I going to attend a weekly one-hour event or am I going to be a part of a living community? I know what some of you are thinking. Who are you kidding with one hour? I know. But anyway, did you know a lot of folks miss church a lot? And I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I just mean they do, right? In, in our church in particular, we've just got a lot, of, a lot of cycling. because This is a busy community. A lot of people travel with work and things of that nature. And so it's not unusual to have people that are here 80, 90% of the time, and also to have people that are here 50% of the time or 25% of the time. Uh, that's a very common thing. And people to disappear for a couple of months and then to, to show back up, that just, that's normal in church all across America. If that's you this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here, right? We love you. But let me ask you, if you're a part of our church and you're one of those regular folks and you're here all the time, when's the last time you told somebody you missed them? When's the last time you reached out to someone in your small group that you haven't seen in a while, if you're in a small group, and said, we've missed you? Or someone that you regularly connect with at church that you've noticed that been here and said, you, we missed you. Or, do you. or do you come to me or a deacon and go, where are they at? Have you reached out to them? Not that we shouldn't, but you should too, right? It takes teamwork to make the dream work, right? So we have to do it together. And when we share ministry and prioritize God's people and God's word, we can fulfill our priorities of God, his word, and his people. Number three, when ministry is shared, godly leaders are utilized and developed or developed and utilized. See, these lead servants came from among them. They were Christians. They were a part of the church. They they rose up from among them. And notice the seven men all have Greek names. You won't catch that. I didn't catch that on first reading. They all have Greek names. To resolve this issue with the Greek-speaking Jewish people that have become believers, they chose godly Greek-speaking leaders. 
See, if you want to reach and minister to a particular people, you have to raise up and utilize leaders from that people, right? It's like a church saying, we want to be really diverse, and everybody on stage is white. Everybody in leadership is white. But we want to be ethnically diverse. No, you don't. We've got to try harder. We've got to, we got to try harder. Because we, if we really want to reach people, we've got to develop leaders from all sorts of people. We've got to be diverse in how we develop leaders and all those sorts of things. And so, for instance, as North Park moved from a different part of town and moved to a new part of town, and we're in a particular community in Orlando, while we're trying to reach people all around, we're, we're based in Baldwin Park. Important that we have people from Baldwin Park in leadership. Just like it was important that they had people from the Hellenistic Jews in leadership. It's an important thing. But what was most important was their character. Good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Just a, a summary of, of godliness. It wasn't, it's important that they be willing to serve. They needed to be willing to serve, but being willing was not enough. They needed to love the Lord and walk with the Lord. Good repute. These men were going to be handling money, helping needy widows. They needed to have a reputation that would enable people to trust them. They needed to have built a reputation, right? That they could be trusted. This wasn't Johnny come lately, right? Hey, this, this guy's breathing. Let's put him in service, right? No. You got a pulse? Yeah, you got a pulse. You're good. No. Do they have a good reputation? Well, they don't really have a reputation. Not ready. It's real simple, right? They had to have a good reputation. They had to be full of the Spirit. You say, well, now that sounds like some charismatic stuff. That's Christianity 101. They had to be yielding to the Spirit and His will in their life. When you have people yielded to themselves, yielded to their flesh instead of the Spirit and leadership, you end up with selfishness, personal preferences and agendas ruling the day instead of Spirit-driven kingdom agendas. Full of wisdom. That's just putting God's truth into practice on a daily basis. Basic wisdom to carry out the task. See, foolish people will lead people into foolishness. And wise people will lead people into wisdom. And this, it, it develops this even further when you get to 1 Timothy for the deacons, for instance, and for pastors. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 for pastors. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 for deacons. But here's just a synopsis of that. Because leadership in the church isn't supposed to go to the connected, but the Christ-like. Not the connected. Christ-like. Deacons, for instance, shouldn't be decided by what they bring to the table. Quote-unquote. If you aren't striving to be spirit-filled, of good reputation, applying godly wisdom in your life, then we have no business leading others in the church. And there are those two offices of pastor and deacon that the Bible makes very clear that there are particular character qualifications that must be met. As we mentioned, 1 Timothy talks about that. Titus for pastors as well. And the only real substantive difference between the qualifications listed in those passages for a pastor and for a deacon, the only substantive difference is the pastors have to be able to teach because they primarily lead the church through teaching, because it's a, the church is a teaching church. It's a, it's a Bible-based group of people. So there's a teaching gift that must be present because the primary leadership in the church, they must lead primarily through that, because the Bible's at the center of all we do. But the basic idea, when you read through the qualifications and you look at this in Acts, the basic idea is you're going, if you're going to serve in one of these offices, you must show that you consistently and faithfully walk with Jesus. And this shows up in family life, it shows up in personal integrity. It shows up in self-control. And the idea is that the character of Christ is to be present in life. Not that they're perfect. Nobody's perfect in these things. It's, it's a pursuit of these things. And an overall, when you, overall arc of their life towards Christ's likeness. And the thing about the qualifications, whether it's here in Acts or you go over to 1 Timothy, here's the thing. They're things that are commanded of every Christian. 
The character things are things that are commanded of every Christian. Example, it says they're not supposed to be a drunk or addicted to alcohol. Well, that doesn't mean everybody else gets to be a drunk, right? Well, I'm not a deacon or a pastor, so I can get hammered on the weekends. Well, that's silly. No, you know the Bible says not to get drunk, right? Just just because they're supposed to be faithful to their spouses doesn't mean you can be unfaithful to yours, right? No, these are things all Christians are called to, right? They're supposed to be men of integrity. Well, that means I don't have to have any integrity. No, they're basic things that are commanded of every single Christian. The point that he's making is these people have to be examples, That's the first most important quality of leadership is that they have to be examples for others. And so we need to develop and put into service and continue to put into service godly people and especially and particularly godly men for leadership because the New Testament teaches us that the church is to primarily be led through male leadership. That's just the way God's designed it. And pastors and deacons must lead in this. And deacons are to be examples of godliness and service to help inspire others to serve Christ's church and in Christ's church. You know, we don't hear much, if anything, of most of these men after this passage. Five of them are never really mentioned again. Only two. One is Stephen. Stephen, the man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, it says. Right after this in chapter 7, and the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, we hear Stephen's story. Stephen is murdered. He's put to death for preaching the gospel. He's doing miracles and preaching the gospel and some people don't like what he has to say about Jesus being the Messiah and the high priest and the council, the big Sanhedrin, they pull him together and they say, what in the world is it that you're doing? They kind of put him on trial. They said a bunch of lies about him that he was saying some things that he really wasn't saying. Cast him in the worst possible light and he stands up and he proclaims the gospel to them and reminds them that they have killed the Son of God and they stoned him to death right there on the spot. And as he was murdered, there was a man named Saul of Tarsus that was watching. The Bible says Saul of Tarsus was giving hearty approval to his death and that everybody had laid their cloaks at his feet while they went so they could throw the rock harder at Stephen. And Saul just gave hearty approval, filled him with such pride to see this Christian man put to death, the first Christian martyr in the New Testament. But I can only imagine the impact seeing Stephen die for his faith had on a man that became known as the Apostle Paul and the greatest leader in the history of the New Testament church, other than Jesus. (laughs) Can't imagine the impact Stephen had on him. The other guy's Philip. We hear about Philip later. He was an evangelist, the Bible tells us. And he took the gospel to Samaria. Not an easy place. He then took the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. You might have heard that story. A guy's riding along, the Ethiopian eunuch. He, he, this was a Gentile guy who had, who had become a believer in Yahweh, but was a Gentile. And he takes the gospel to him so he can go back and take it to his people and to those Gentile people. He also then took the gospel to Azotus and Caesarea on the, on the coast. In other words, Philip was an evangelist, so he was taking the gospel to new places all the time. He was traveling around, preaching the gospel, people being saved. Mighty miracles happening as he preached the gospel. So these two men in particular went on to be greatly used by God in proclaiming the gospel. But the first time they're mentioned in Acts, the very first time they're mentioned in Acts, they're serving tables. They're serving tables. And the thing is, God's plans for his people, his biggest, greatest plans for you and for me, are not divorced from his church. They're not. And as the Spirit raises up folks who are to... We're supposed to, as a church, develop them, put them into service. And you know, if we were to reach and to disciple and to develop and deploy people, and in particularly godly men in our community, you imagine what God might do? Might do something like he did back then. 
But see, servants are people that are willing to just step up and service wherever service is needed. And that's not just pastors, that's not just deacons, that's everybody, right? We're trying to go bring these things together. I want you to see the offices, but I want you to see that there's a role for each of us. Could it be that here at North Park we have a Philip that will one day take the gospel to new places? I hope so. Might it be that he needs to start in the parking lot? Maybe. Maybe there are some folks that God has big plans for this morning. Huge plans. God's going to use you in incredible ways. I'm not saying you're going to be martyred like Stephen, but God's going to use you in incredible ways like he did Stephen and like he did Philip. But maybe it starts with changing a dirty diaper in a nursery. God doesn't generally have big plans for people that aren't willing to do small things. Maybe it starts with greeting people, connecting with guests, reaching out to people that are hurting in your church community, people that have slipped through the cracks. Maybe it starts with things that seem small that nobody even notices, that you never even get thanked for very much. Things that you don't even want to do, that you don't feel qualified to do, that you don't even think you're good at. Could be. Number four. When ministry is shared, disciples can be multiplied. See, when the word of God continued to increase, it says in verse 7, disciples are multiplied in Jerusalem. It says priests begin to come to the faith. I read that many of the priests were poor, and they would have been attracted to the faith as they saw how generous these people were to the poor, to these widows, as these deacons or these servants let out in that. So they begin to see there were many, 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 many priests in their rankings, and, and they just many of them begin to come to, faith, to the faith. And disciples begin to just not be added, multiplied in Jerusalem. I believe that can happen in Orlando. I believe disciples can be multiplied in Ball and Park and around Orlando. But this begins with everyone, all of us doing our part, pitching in, serving. Many hands, as it's been said, make light work. This starts with those called to the offices of pastor and deacon leading out in that. You know, when I was in third grade, I remember we began to learn something called the multiplication table. Now, I don't know what grade they teach it now because everything's weird in school now. They're teaching all kinds of coding and weird stuff, you know. But when, when I was in third grade, I remember the multiplication table, and it went to 12, right? I don't know why 12, but that's where it went to. 12 times 12 is 144. I remember that. And it was just memorization, right? I actually did pretty well at it. I remember that. The thing I noticed about the multiplication table is the numbers got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger really quick, a lot quicker than they do in addition. And if I was to ask you this morning, would you rather someone add two to your income this year or multiply by two? You'd say, I'll take multiply, right? I mean, who wouldn't take multiply, right? If you wouldn't, we need to get you back in school, right? So, and so we, in the church, we don't just want addition. We want multiplication. That's what the early church saw. It was multiplication. But here's the key. Multiplication in the church starts with division. <laughs> it starts with division. It starts with sharing. It starts with taking it and spreading it. It's also getting more and more people involved, dividing up the work, and more and more people serving and participating in their role. That's how multiplication happens in ministry. And as we show ourselves faithful to the ministry God has given us, could it be that he may entrust us with more and more and more? If we poorly manage the ministry and the people God gives us, could it be that God could raise up other churches for his people to be a part of? As a good heavenly father, could it be that God desires to entrust his children to good homes? I think so. I think so. See, sharing ministry well starts with the officers in the church, the pastors and the deacons. And when the church gets those roles right, it stands a much better chance for it to filter and filtrate throughout the church. But healthy things ultimately grow and healthy things share. 
And I want us to move in our church beyond addition to multiplication. And this only happens as we share ministry, develop leaders, deploy leaders, put people into service. And we must not forget at the very core, the church is a family of disciples that are making disciples. Jesus, when he first called Peter and Andrew, all the way back at the beginning of the Gospels, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, follow me and here's the point. Here's the goal. Here's the whole thing about it. You're going to become fishers of men. See, one part of being a disciple is following Jesus. The other part is helping others follow Jesus. If you're missing one of those components, you're missing a key part of discipleship. So today we gather together to follow Jesus and to fish for people. And part of discipleship is following Jesus. The other part, helping others follow him, and then them helping others follow him. And it's multiplication as it goes throughout the church. And the very heart of this idea of sharing ministry together is the idea of discipleship is at the very core of that. And at the very core of discipleship is Jesus. And at the end of the day, we share ministry simply because we want to more effectively help people follow Jesus. You say, why do I greet people on Sunday mornings? You want to help people follow Jesus. I can draw you a line to how it works. You say, why, why, do, why do we need people to, to, to teach small groups? We want to help people follow Jesus. Why do I need to reach out to people in my small group that are hurting and, or that are missing from church and tell them that we've missed them? Why do I need to write notes? Because we want to help people follow Jesus. Why do I need to change diapers in the nursery? Because we want to help people follow Jesus. Why do I need to be down there helping with Kidmo? Because we need to help people follow Jesus. Because as we share ministry, we can help more people follow ministry. The more hands we got, the more we can hold. It's real simple. Now, this morning, if you're not a Christian, I know this has been aimed at pretty much a straight, straight shot at us this morning in the church, but if you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this morning, the whole deal is Jesus. That's really what we're about. And everything we do and everything that's going on here today, we're not about programs. We're, we're, we're not some, you know, just here to gather and do good things and, be not, and become nice people. We're about Jesus. We believe he's king. We believe he's Lord. We believe he's Savior. We believe he's God or we wouldn't be here today. And Jesus looks at you this morning and he says, follow me. And Jesus can say, follow me to you because Jesus came to you. And he died in your place on the cross bearing your sin and the punishment of it. He rose again so that you can have life and salvation in him and be justified before God. And in Jesus, we have a leader, a chief shepherd, the chief pastor who has laid down his life for his people. So my first question for you this morning is, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Because if, if that's not happening, the whole ministry and sharing ministry and all these things we've talked about won't even be your heartbeat. You might be in the church, you might be a part, but it won't be your heartbeat. It won't be anything that it really crosses your mind much. Other, church will be a weekly event. It will not be a living community if you're not following Jesus. Are you following Jesus? That's number one. Number two, if you're a Christian this morning, we know and we need to be reminded often that it's all about Jesus. He's the leader, right? It's his church. He's in charge. He's the boss. It's a privilege to be your pastor, but the chief shepherd's not me. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the one that laid down his life for us. But we need more and more people to serve in Jesus' church so we can make more and more disciples of Jesus. And yes, that means those offices, but it also means everybody playing their role, whatever that might be at this particular time. And we do all this because we follow Jesus and we think he's worth it. We'll pray for us this morning. We're going to have a time of response where you can pray. We're going to sing together.